Such a treat to have the band with us today. But uh, we decided we'd have mercy on them and not make them sit through the sermon twice. So, I mean, they've done really well. They shouldn't be punished in that way. So we're going to let them go. If it hadn't gone quite so well, maybe we would have made them stay. But thank you all. That was very well done. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you guys. Wow, they're leaving fast. All right. So uh, glad you're here today. Just a couple things while they depart. Remember, we've got Pack the Forest coming up uh, in the early part of December, and uh, we, we have volunteers to participate in the event, uh, but we need to finish our fundraising part of it. You'll see the information for that on the table out here uh, in the lobby on your way out. Check that out. I know we're going to get it done. I know you just kind of like to make Pastor Bernie nervous, and I agree, I like that too, but, uh, but uh, let's go ahead and finish that off and, uh, so we can get that done and have that project again this year. Also, this next week uh, is a special week, and we, we've, we've been doing this with House of Prayer uh, for the last several years, and uh, we're going to continue it again uh, this year in this fall series. But uh, making it a, a special week of fasting and prayer, and I invite you uh, to participate in any way you can in this next week as we build up to the last Sabbath of our series next week, uh, our series, The End is Certain, and uh, it's going to be a special Sabbath next week. You're going to want to be here because uh, there's going to be some special choir numbers that we're doing and kind of a festival Sabbath wrap-up of the series all all wrapped up into one experience. So I hope you'll be here next week, and I hope you participate uh, in prayer throughout this week for, uh, for the effect of this series in our own lives and in the lives of others. Um, and, and if uh, God puts on your heart to participate in fasting, I hope you will. Uh, one other item is one of the things we do during this week is instead of just Wednesday evening for House of Prayer, we're actually going to have a short gathering every night of the week. Um, so I'll be here each evening at 7 o'clock, and it really only be a half an hour uh, on most nights. Uh, we may do more like 45 minutes on Wednesday, but, uh, but about a half an hour each night. Uh, and if you'd like to come out at any point and pray with us or be prayed for, um, come and be a part of that. So we'll be here at the church praying. So, all right. Looks like everybody's gone. That was amazing, wasn't it? We even lost half of the front of the church, so yeah. We should add that count a little earlier, I think, yeah. All right, here we go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this Sabbath day and for the way we've been blessed uh, by the band from Forest Lake Academy. It is a blessing to us to have that institution right next door to us. And uh, I thank you for people like Mr. Tavashi and and so many others, Mr. Becker, that so often brings groups over to bless us in our time and for uh, the different ones that Steve's already prayed for them all. But Lord, we're thankful that we have this blessing. Now, Lord, as we turn our minds to your word, give us focus. One more day, make us sharp to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The year was 1843. And the Millerites were excited. You remember the Millerites, that's the group of hopeful believers who, based on Daniel chapter 8, believed that Jesus would be coming somewhere around the year 1843 to 1844. 
If you're just visiting with us today, we've been in the middle of a series from the book of Daniel that we're calling The End is Certain. We spoke specifically about William Miller and the story of the Millerites about three Sabbaths ago when we spoke of the prophecy that put the advent in Adventist. A quick review, William Miller was a Baptist farmer. He grew up in a Christian home, but in the days of the Enlightenment, sort of drifted away from his faith to be a deist, someone who believed that, yes, there was a God who created, but he's long since gone on to something else, and we're just kind of on our own. But then some of his experiences in life just made him think that can't be all there is. And he came back to faith. He came back as a very determined Bible student who came up with a systematic plan for studying his Bible. More on that in a minute. And he concluded from his study that Jesus was coming very soon. But as a farmer, as opposed to a pastor, he was very reluctant to speak of it. But eventually he did, and it started a movement from which the Seventh-day Adventist church grew. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. William Miller had been publicly teaching his belief and interpretation for about 12 years by the year 1843. All of that the result of a reckless deal that Miller had made with the Lord one day at his home in Lowhampton, New York. For that story, if you want to hear the rest of it, go back and listen to the message from October 24. But Miller wasn't alone. He wasn't the only one by 1843 who was proclaiming this message. Many others had joined, and now it was called the Second Advent Movement. And many were proclaiming this message, including a certain young clergyman by the name of James White and an older sea captain by the name of Joseph Bates, two gentlemen that would go on to play a key role in the formation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And in fact, even at that time, before anyone had even conceived of the notion of a Seventh-day Adventist church, there was one Advent-believing congregation in Washington, New Hampshire, that had actually begun to hold its services on Saturdays as the result of the influence of Rachel Oaks, a Seventh-day Baptist. Miller was very cognizant of the words of Jesus when Jesus said, no man knoweth the day nor the hour. And Miller had always shied away from picking a specific day on which the Lord would come. But Miller believed that the Lord's admonition did not imply we could not know the year. And Miller believed that Daniel 8 told the year. Miller initially had concluded that Jesus would come sometime between the spring of 1843 and the spring of 1844. And he based this idea on Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, where we find these words in the King James, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And here is how Miller arrived at his conclusion. You see, Miller had embraced a principle for interpretation of the prophecies of Daniel called the year-day principle. The idea that for each prophetic day mentioned in a prophecy, God intended a literal year. And on the one hand, this approach might seem somewhat arbitrary and somewhat unprecedented. But in truth, there actually are multiple places in Scripture where this concept occurs. 
The first time we see anything like this concept occurs in the book of Numbers, just after the Israelites have spent, sent the 12 spies into the land of Canaan to spy out the land for 40 days. Now, if you recall this story, when the spies came back and joined the people, 10 of them said, no, they're too strong, we can't go in, while two of them said, we can. Unfortunately, the people listened to the 10 And they refused to go up into the land, and they began to lay plans to take all of Israel back to Egypt. Now, this is what the Lord said to Israel in response to their rebellion. Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 30. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. Okay, now that's kind of a bizarre passage. And what in the world would have caused Miller to make any connection between those passages? Well, this comes down to the method that Miller had established for himself for Bible study. And this was his method. He determined that he would begin to read in his Bible. And whenever he came to something he didn't understand, he would then take a concordance. That's a book that that shows all the places in the Bible that a certain word is used. He would then take a concordance and look everywhere he could in the Bible to try to make sense of the passage. And if he could then reconcile what he discovered with what he was reading, and then if it was prophetic, to look into a historical context, then he would embrace that as his understanding. And so Miller's reading along and he sees this days mentioned in the book of Daniel and he finds this in the book of Numbers that that provides a concrete suggestion that, that we might think of some association there between years and days. But Miller, as he looked, would also find a prophetic symbolic example in the writings of a contemporary of Daniel, in the writings of Ezekiel. You remember we've talked about this, how Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel were all writing at the same time, but to different groups. And he found this, Miller found this in Ezekiel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Now, it was kind of interesting to be a prophet, Because sometimes God gave you interesting ways. And Ezekiel seems to have a lot of these very interesting acted out scenarios to teach the people. One time God tells him, I want you to dig a hole in the wall of your house and go out through it so that the people will understand how the city will fall. Well, this time it's kind of like a kind of like a great big Lego setup. I mean, he's supposed to build a pretend Jerusalem and then build pretend armies that are going to attack it. Now, watch what happens next. And then it says, then lie on your left side... And put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. 
You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem, and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. The challenge of being a prophet can be a pretty big challenge sometimes. When was the last time you laid for 390 days on one side and then finally got some relief and spent 40 on the other? But these are not the only two examples in the Bible where years for days or days for years is used. Jesus was involved in a day for a year exercise as well. Jesus would, with this concept, use a day for a year to redeem a portion of Israel's story. And you can find this in different Gospels, but we'll look in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased." At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Okay, why did Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted immediately after passing through the waters and being recognized as God's holy son? Well, I'll tell you why. He did it in order to redeem the failure of Israel. Think about it. Did Israel ever pass through the waters? Does anybody remember the Red Sea? Yeah. Was Israel ever recognized by God as his people? Well, do you remember the covenant at Mount Sinai? Yet when temptation came upon Israel, they failed and had to turn back to the wilderness of Sinai for how long? Forty years. All right, now let's compare Jesus' story. Jesus appears on the bank of the Jordan and passes through the waters in baptism. Immediately afterward, he is recognized as being in covenantal relationship with God when God opens heaven and a dove descends on him. And immediately after these things, what does Jesus do? He goes into the wilderness for how long? Forty days. But unlike Israel, Jesus returns victorious from the wilderness, thus redeeming the failure of Israel. Have I mentioned before how this really is all about Jesus? I feel like I have. But back to Miller and our discussion of his interpretation of Daniel 8, 14. 
it wasn't without any historical confirmation that we apply this year day principle. I mean, we're not just taking these interesting passages and somehow trying to squeeze them in. You see, the prophecy of Daniel 9 is very important to us because as we saw last Sabbath, Daniel 9 proves our model of interpretation through the timing of the coming of Jesus the first time he came. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed or cut off for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So according to this prophecy, from the time when a decree is given that Jerusalem is to be restored with walls and become significant to its region again, until the arrival of the Messiah was to be the first 69 weeks of the 70-week prophecy. And last week, we took a look at history, and then we did the math, and we discovered that in the year 457 BC, Artaxerxes, king of the Persians, made just such a decree about Jerusalem. And then, 69 literal weeks, 483 literal days later, absolutely nothing happened. In other words, we can't interpret it as literal days because absolutely nothing happened. But 483 years later, something did. AD 27 is 483 years later, and that was the year that Jesus appeared at the Jordan to be baptized by John. So you see, this idea of applying a year for a day is not just some untested, crazy, far-fetched, make-it-work notion. It has actually been proven true already by Jesus himself. But back to Miller in Daniel 8.14. Miller knew that Daniel 8.14 spoke of a long time period, 2,300 years Yet Daniel 8 does not provide a starting point from which to begin counting those years. And this was a concern for Daniel as well. When he saw the vision that's recorded in chapter 8, you'll recall he said, I did not understand. But then we get to chapter 9 and it begins with, he begins to understand. And Gabriel comes to him, the same one who came to him in chapter 8, comes again for the purpose of bringing understanding And it is then that we begin to realize what he tells him in chapter 9 about the 70 weeks. These are days cut off from the 2300 days of chapter 8. They both start at the same time. And this is the conclusion that led to the math that would shake Miller's world and then led to the Second Advent movement and eventually put the advent in Adventist. For you see, 457 B.C. plus 2,300 years equals 1843. 
Now, Miller had to take into account the difference between modern calendars and Jewish calendars, and by so doing, determined the prophecy was saying Jesus would come sometime between Passover 1843 and Passover 1844. And throughout the year of 1843, anticipation for the coming of Jesus grew and was becoming quite intense, as you can imagine, by the spring of 1844. But spring came and spring passed and Jesus didn't come. Understandably, the movement floundered a little bit, but because there had been no singular expectation on any singular day, the movement still held together, assuming they had, must have missed something. And then came a new interpretation that set the preliminary disappointed Adventist completely on fire. This new understanding was called the seventh month movement. And it was from this that the date October 22, 1844 would be set as the expected day of the return of the Lord. The reason this date was chosen was the result of a more careful reading of the prophecy and a realization that the assumption that it established the date as occurring between Passover 1843 and Passover 1844 was inherently flawed Because Passover was not the event depicted in the vision. Now we don't have nearly enough time to devote to this idea as we need. But let me try to explain the reasoning as succinctly as possible. The Adventists began to realize, and not that this was a completely new way to think, but this was kind of new to apply this thinking to prophecy. The Adventists began to realize that each feast of the Jewish year was correlated to an event in Christian history. Passover correlated with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then Pentecost, which was the feast of first fruits, it's when you bring in the first of the harvest and you bring it before the Lord, believing that the Lord will bless to a great harvest. Pentecost correlated to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. But if you're in the Jewish calendar, then there's a long break in the calendar with no festivals at all until you come to three in a row, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Trumpets served as the warning that the people need to prepare for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the most important day of the year, at least from the perspective of the temple service. For on that day, and only on that day, the high priest would venture beyond the veil from the holy place of the temple into the most holy place and stand before the mercy seat, the dwelling place of the Shekinah glory of God, the only time of the year that the priest went there. The Day of Atonement was the day when the guilt of all the sins of the community of Israel that the people had confessed with sacrifices at the temple, when the sins would be removed from the temple and taken from the midst of the people. Now, this gives us an insight into sin, and it's an important insight. You see, sometimes we get it in our heads that sin is actually a pretty small thing because I do something wrong and then I say, Father, forgive me, and he just kind of makes it go poof like it didn't happen. But sin is not a small thing. 
Sin is ripping at the very fabric of God's creation. When we live out of harmony with our creator and out of harmony with the way he created us to live, we don't just do a little thing, we tear the creation itself. Sacrifice was the means by which sinners have their guilt for sin removed. And so uh, the sinner would come to the temple and and confess their sin over the lamb and the the lamb would be sacrificed and, and they would be absolved of the sin, but the sin itself doesn't go away so simply. It was transferred then to the sanctuary. Sacrifice removes guilt from us, but only atonement cleanses the sanctuary. To their credit, the Millerites were beginning to understand some of this, but it was what they did not understand that led to the disappointment. The Millerites began to notice the wording of the prophecy, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And what they realized is this, that's not Passover language, that's Day of Atonement language. So since Passover symbolized Jesus' death and resurrection, events that took place in the spring, the event we're expecting, the second coming of Jesus, must be associated with the Day of Atonement, a festival that takes place in the fall. And it didn't take them long after this to run off and figure out exactly when the Day of Atonement in the year 1844 was to take place. And it turns out that was to be October 22. As you can imagine, this understanding lit a crazy fire that restored all of the Millerite fervor and drove them forward in complete, passionate intensity. But as is clear enough to us today, Jesus didn't come on October 22, 1844, the day now forever known amongst the descendants of the Millerites as the Great Disappointment. On the morning of October 23, 1844, the Adventists faced the stark reality that they must now make a choice between four options. Option one was to deny the whole thing and to cross it off as a stupid enthusiasm and we should just abandon all notion that we can ever know anything about when Jesus is coming. And a lot of them did. The second option was to just close your eyes and believe anyway that that Jesus had come, only it was a spiritual coming, and we were all to start living now as though Jesus had come. The problem was this started getting really weird because this group, some of them began crawling around and behaving like little children in their worship services because hadn't Jesus said, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like little children? Others began abandoning their marriages because, well, we're not supposed to be married in heaven. That was their understanding. The third option was that Jesus really was about to come, but somehow we had misinterpreted the prophecy. 
This was the approach taken by the largest group that would continue to hang on to Miller's teaching. And in fact, Miller himself was a part of this group and would remain that way until he died in the year 1849, still looking for Jesus to appear as he would say, now I set the day as today and today and today. It was at that point the largest group, and out of that group, Advent Christians is a, is a church that survives to this day, but by the 1990s, it was a community of less than 28,000, a number that further fell by the year 2006 to under 26,000. For perspective, that's less than the number of Adventists in the Florida Conference. But then there was one more group. The group that said, no, we interpreted this prophecy right. This date is right, but what we got wrong is the event. We, the Seventh-day Adventists, would grow from this group. This group was initially the smallest group of all. Yet today, of the Millerites, it is by far and away the largest, with 18.1 million members worldwide. Strange to think that a group who would hang on to the interpretive model that led to the great disappointment would survive at all, much less thrive. Because to all the other groups, about the easiest thing to throw away was the interpretive model. Well, we were just crazy, I guess. Yet this one persistent group could not abandon the model that so well described the first coming of Jesus and the history of the rise and the fall of the church from Daniel 7. So this group kept studying and looking and praying, and one day someone asked the question, why was it that we thought the sanctuary to be cleansed was the earth? On to 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And then in the asking of the question came the realization that the prophecy hadn't failed, only human understanding had failed. And as the folks who would one day become the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church went back and studied, they began to realize Day of Atonement isn't the feast associated with the Second Coming. It's the feast associated with judgment and final deliverance from sin. The Feast of Tabernacles, which comes later, that's the one that relates to the Second Coming. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you know what the word tabernacle means? A tabernacle is a dwelling place. And the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt amongst his people. The Feast of Tabernacles is all about God dwelling with man. 
which is what the second coming will establish forever and what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. But the Day of Atonement is about judgment and deliverance, events that must transpire before and right up to the coming of Jesus. All of this is very clearly signaled in Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember the part about the court scene in Daniel chapter 7 where one like a son of man, Jesus, approaches the ancient of days, God the Father, in order to receive the kingdom away from the beasts and from the horns that continuously wreak havoc in the earth? Daniel 7 verse 26, but the court will sit. That's judgment language. And his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Judgment on the powers that oppose God's people and oppose God's purpose and deliverance for God's people. So how long are the nations and powers of this dark world allowed to inflict their ruin before judgment begins? Daniel 8, verse 13. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto the certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. In other words, then shall the final work of judgment begin. The point, the reality that puts the advent in Adventist The prophecy in Daniel chapter 8 didn't state when Jesus would come. The prophecy indicated when judgment would begin. And when judgment ends, Jesus comes. But the catch, we don't know exactly when it will end. Therefore, we don't know exactly when Jesus will come. We only know it will be Soon. Oh, soon, soon, you say. What does that even mean? Well, I don't exactly know. But I can tell you this. Just because soon doesn't seem all that soon to me doesn't mean the prophecy has failed. Consider, and we will close with this from Second Peter chapter 3, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Seems a rather apt description of our time. And even some of our own number who think we ought to finally outgrow some of our original interpretations of prophecy. And while I understand the temptation to do so, after all, my children are sixth 
generation proclaimers of the soon coming. Think about that. Even though I understand the temptation to do so, I want to appeal to you today to not reject the prophecies that have proven themselves trustworthy and true just because soon hasn't seemed soon enough. Back to Second Peter, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Don't miss this point. It is because of the mercy of God that things delay. Make no mistake, judgment has begun. And it isn't that it just takes so long, Jesus can't seem to finish it up. No, the delay is because God so loved the world. And it is his desire that all will come to faith and all will believe and be saved. Now maybe we're getting a little impatient. But have we become so like Jonah that we are tempted to begrudge God for his mercy and forbearance? Wouldn't we better make use of God's merciful delay to see to it that as many as possible know of the grace of Jesus and that he is coming soon? Are we so longing for our own deliverance that we have no sense of mission to our neighbors who may be lost? Lord, save us from a selfish salvation. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So what are the implications? Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. We've been reminded of the ugliness of the beasts and the horns that wreak havoc in the world as, as we learned the news last night out of Paris that another round of needless killings has taken place in this world of sin. It is to put an end to those things that judgment has, become, has begun. But sometimes I wonder, even in our day, and we look at those things and we're so shocked, have we forgotten the terrible things that have happened through history? The events in other times that make the events in Paris seem child's play in comparison? Are we only offended because it happened in our day? Has not the forbearance of God been shown for generations? Yet we look and say, Jesus, come right now and save me because I'm uncomfortable in my life. 
I believe it's a call to engagement. Remember that theme this year, engage? That we would become engaged in God's purpose for this time? I believe it's a call to us to become engaged in the mission of Jesus to the world in our day. Not just to stand on the side and wait till he comes and rescues us out but to become engaged in his purpose to save the world. That we might make a difference in our day. It all comes to an end when the judgment is done and Jesus stands up before the court and the books are closed And he comes to get all who have put their faith in him. Yes, we pray that day would be soon. But may that day not be before all who can be a part of that kingdom have come to be a part of his kingdom. It's all about Jesus. He is the one who comes. He will be king forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you will give us a heart of service. We pray that we will labor faithfully in these days. And when we see these things that remind us that the world is filled with beasts and persecuting horns, that we will remember that judgment has begun. And one day Jesus will stand up and he will put an end to it all. And we will reign with him forever. We pray for that day in Jesus' name. Amen.